Well, hear now these words from the psalmist. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm watching little Benjamin chase his mother out. Do you remember when she would hold him during COVID as she sang? Feels like a lifetime ago. Our second text is uh, from 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 2 through 10. Uh, continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, your word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed, we would be different. We'd be open to that transformation. That you'd meet us with the word that you need us to hear. That you'd speak to us. For we are listening. And we know that you're in our midst. For that we say thank you. And invite you to speak. In Christ's name, amen. Well, based on uh, current data, it's safe to say that about one in four of you, about 25%, have taken an in-home DNA test. About 25% of you, I'm not gonna ask you to let me know who you are, but about 25% of you have done that. The market, of course, uh, is now flooded with companies offering self-administered kits 
that promise to trace the trajectory uh, and uh, identity of your genetic history. In theory, and with some measure of accuracy these days, these tests provide an ancestral breakdown of your family uh, heritage and where your lineage comes from, with many of these companies actually offering access to an online database where you can find other people who match your DNA, people that you may have not known were related to you. So some folks have discovered a nationality or an ethnicity uh, or a story of origin for them uh, in their DNA, in their genetic makeup that they had no idea they had. Some adoptees have been able to find uh, their birth parents and some have reunited with long lost relatives that didn't even know they existed. One of our church members who is white recently uh, told me a story, an experience of his with this kind of thing where he discovered that he was kin to a bunch of second and third cousins who are black. He showed me a picture from a recent family reunion on his phone this past week, uh, a reunion that he was invited to attend with his wife, and there he was in the middle of this large family, smiling from ear to ear. You couldn't miss them. <laughs> now, of course, amidst uh, the positive and heartwarming stories that have come from uh, DNA testing, there have also been some difficult one as well, some horror stories. I'm glad the kids have all left because this is going to get PG-13. It's like the man I read about who found out that he's not the biological father of his child after he took one of these tests. Or like the child who finds out that their brothers and sisters are actually only half-siblings when they all took the test. There is now actually a growing number of support groups online, support groups online for people who have discovered really hard secrets and truths about their families uh, through this DNA testing. In fact, there's one support group on Facebook that has over a thousand people subscribed to it, where they share stories of the devastation of what they have learned and what secrets were kept from them or from generations gone by. One of the elements about DNA and genetic testing uh, that I think is quite compelling is that it is immutably and unchangingly objective, right? It, it's just the truth, right? It just speaks the truth. It just, it just speaks facts. It's like what Harper Lee's character, Atticus Finch, uh, who taught Scout and Jem said, you can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. And they're still kin to you no matter whether you acknowledge them or not. And this truth, I think, extends to our DNA and to our genetic makeup, doesn't it, right? We don't choose it. None of us, within the sound of my voice, chooses it. We don't elect it. It chooses us, our parentage, our family line, our heritage, our nationality, our race, our ethnicity. We choose none of it, none of it. It's chosen for us. Now, the English word genetic uh, actually has its etymological root in the ancient Greek language. And that's important to know for our purposes this morning. 
because that very word shows up in our New Testament text. Specifically, 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 9. It's the word the New Revised Standard Version, that's the version we use, translates as the English word race. It reads like this, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this Greek word, genos, literally translates, literally translates as lineage or bloodline. And that's why I think the translators of the NRSV got this one wrong, because it doesn't quite work with the intent of this particular word. Because you can have different races or different ethnicities as part of one family line, as part of one lineage. Some of us grew up on the, on the King James version of the Bible. It doesn't help us uh, any more than the word race does, I think. As it translates this particular word to generation, it says, ye are a chosen generation. But in my opinion, generation doesn't quite cut it either. It misses the mark because what Genos is uh, describing is not just one isolated generation, but multiple generations that share the same parentage. So, and this is okay to do, by the way, to evaluate and to see if the word makes sense in the English translation. There are reasons why they were translated this way. I just think it was a poor choice. So what would be a better translation here? Now, this is going to sound overly simple, but I think a better translation is the word family, is the word family. I'd like it to read, but you are a chosen family. You are an elected family. Earlier in the sermon, you'll remember I said that we do not have any say uh, in our DNA, in our genetic composition. We don't get to choose our family, our line. But what this text infers is quite interesting, is that God actually does. God gets to choose God's family. That's what the text infers, that God gets to choose God's family. Now, this is the point in the sermon when, theologically speaking, we have to dig a little bit deeper because there is a question that is at least on the front of my mind, perhaps it's on your mind, and it goes something like this. How does one know that they're actually part of God's family. Like, how do you know that? And, and, and platitudes won't do. We can't just say some kumbaya sentence. Theologically, thinking about it critically, how does somebody know that they're part of this family? How does somebody know that they belong? That they have a place at the table in the household of God? I want to do a little history. That, that question was paramount for the pastor and theologian John Calvin. He's sort of the grandparent of Presbyterianism. He was pastoring in Geneva, Switzerland as part of the first generation or 1.5 generation of Protestant reformers. Now we've got to remember this, that the church that Calvin was pastoring in Geneva, the people who made up that church, had grown up and been formed by the Roman church. Because all the churches that became Protestant were once 
Catholic. And part of the Roman church's theology included a teaching that somebody, that someone rather, can lose their salvation. In other words, they can lose their space at the table in the household of God. That they can be kicked out of the family. That's what the doctrine taught. So you had to be on your best behavior. You had to buy indulgences. You had to show up for mass. You had to honor the priest. You had to do all of these different things so you could keep and hold your place. And that's what these folks believed. So as the Protestant Reformation is starting uh, to grow and Calvin is preaching to all of these former Roman Catholics, uh, he has uh, encountered in them a deep and abiding fear. They're afraid that they're going to lose their place in the family of God. He sees it. He hears it from them. I mean, think about it. They've left the Catholic Church. They've been told that if you leave the Catholic Church, you are outside of the family now outside looking in. So pastorally, he wants to respond like any good pastor would. He wants, to, he wants to share some good news with a heart that is afraid and a heart that was troubled. And so to address this concern, he created what people who came after him called the doctrine of predestination. Now, if you've been around Presbyterians, you affiliate this word with Presbyterians. I think it is often a misunderstood idea. And let me say, we don't have a ton of time to do this, but let me just say in brief, predestination is not philosophical determinism. What I mean by that is that every action, every moment in time is determined. That's not what predestination is about. It's not about free will. Uh, it's not about how much of free will you have or how much you don't. Predestination is actually about God's election and God's choice of individuals to be part of God's family. That's what it's about. That God predestines to elect people to be part of the family of God. And Calvin, in his preaching and in his teaching, would share with this frightened congregation that you can't lose your salvation. You can't be replaced at the table of God. That, that you belong eternally. That when God predestines you and elects you, that is the final word. And he wanted to bring that good news to his people. Unfortunately, he took it one step further. And to be sure, this step has created confusion, trepidation, and ambivalence for many people who have tried to understand this idea of God electing God's people to be part of God's family. Calvin said that not only did God elect some to be part of God's family, but God also elected some to be excluded from God's family. Ouch. I mean, if this is your first time in church, I'm sorry. We'll unpack that in just a moment. But, but in shorthand, what Calvin was saying is that some are chosen and some are not. Some are chosen to be part of God's family and some are not. Now, I think it needs to be said that I have never met a, a real pure Calvinist who believes in predestination that 
does not believe that they're part of the elect. <laughs> right? Like, I've never met somebody who says, yeah, I believe that God predestined some to be part of God's family, and I believe that God predestined some to not be part of God's family, and I think I'm part of the group that's not in God's family. I've never heard anybody say that, ever. And I want to appreciate our, our, our history here. I want to appreciate Calvin's pastoral intuition. I think that's important to note. I also want to appreciate how he holds the sovereignty of God over the church, right? Back in a day when the church ruled the world, and, and what he was saying was that, that no, that God chooses not human beings, but God chooses who's a part of God's family. I want to hold that up. But in that second step, he does something that is so familiar to us human beings. He takes it a step further and says that there's some people that are in and there's some people that are out. And we do that, don't we? Like we love to look at the world through the lens of winners and losers, insiders and outsiders, those who belong and those who do not. Our faith and history tour group from First Pres uh, just got back from uh, Germany, 26 members strong. Uh, we spent 12 days in Germany studying and tracing the steps of the Confessing Church movement. The Confessing Church was a powerful witness to the Lordship of Christ during uh, the Nazi regime. They were part of the resistance against Adolf Hitler uh, and against the Nazi project. There are some famous figures who are connected to the Confessing Church, names like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Paul Schneider, and Karl Barth. And I'm going to say more about both Schneider and Barth in just a moment. But now I want us to remember, just go back into history, and remember that part of Nazi propaganda held up that there were insiders and outsiders. There were those who belong and those who do not belong. And part of Nazi propaganda said that it was the Aryans and specifically the Germans who were the fullest expression of human beings, that they were the Ubermensch, that they were superior, that they were the ones chosen by God to demonstrate full humanity. And all others who did not fit those categories needed to be put in their place or eliminated. As part of our study trip, we went to the Buchenwald concentration camp, which is just outside of Weimar. This camp imprisoned uh, and worked to death and murdered people from all walks of life. Of course, there were Jews who were tortured and killed there. There were German citizens who resisted Hitler. There were Soviet prisoners of war. There were the infirmed and disabled. And there were lesbians and gays who were all part of this camp. Uh, one of its most famous prisoners was Paul Schneider, who I just mentioned a moment ago. He was a pastor. He was preaching uh, against Hitler. He was preaching against the Nazi project. And some secret uh, Nazi intelligence officers heard him preach and said, you need to stop, you need to leave your congregation, or you're going to be thrown in prison. The next Sunday, he got up in the pulpit and he preached again. And sure enough, he was arrested and he was shipped off to Buchenwald. And he had a key to his freedom. All he had to do was to stop preaching and to salute Hitler. And he refused to do it. When we were there, we got a chance to see his cell, a very tiny cell. He was part of the, the, the prison that was in the, uh, the, 
gate that led you into the camp and his cell face with a tiny window, the plots where prisoners would, would come for roll call twice a day, standing there for hours on end. And Paul Schneider, on the very first day he was there, he climbed on his bunk, he pressed his face to the open window, and he began to preach the sermons that they told him not to preach. And he preached about God's inclusive love. He preached about how all are called to be part of the family of God. He talked about Christ's love for everyone and his forgiveness for the sins of the world. These weren't long sermons because the SS would come in as he would start to preach and they would bring their batons and they would beat him into submission. But the next day he would climb his bunk, press his face to the window and preach the same sermon. And sure enough, the SS would come in with their batons and beat him into submission. He did this for over a year every day until one day instead of batons, they brought in a syringe and gave him a lethal injection, and he died at Buchenwald. He was 41 years old, and one of the countless martyrs who refused to believe in ideologies that declared that some were chosen and some were not. History is replete with incidents and examples, including in the history of the church, where people came to believe that they were chosen and others were on the outside looking in, that they belonged and others did not. And it led to violence and it led to exclusion and it led to marginalization and it led to a subversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here is the $64,000 question. How do you read a text like 1 Peter 2.9? How do you think theologically about God's elected family without falling into the trap of us versus them? I mean, how do you do that? How do you do that without creating a world of winners and losers, those belong and those who don't? I mentioned Karl Barth just a few moments ago, and he's going to take us home in this sermon because I believe his thoughts on this very question are exceptionally relevant for the church today. Barth was a Swiss-German pastor and theologian who ministered and wrote and taught from the early 1900s until his death in 1968. Bart, who was an avid student of the Reformed tradition, which made him an avid student, student rather, of John Calvin, was uh, less than amused by Calvin's doctrine of predestination. He recognized Calvin's good intentions, but he also recognized that this kind of theology, even when it's unintentional, creates this world of us against them and creates this world where there's only good news for some people, just some people. So Bart wanted to maintain God's sovereign freedom to choose who's a part of God's eternal family. But unlike Calvin, and here's what he did, which is brilliant, and it's the word I think the church needs to live into today. Unlike Calvin, who believed that God elects some and rejects others, Bart believed that God is at once the one who elects and is also the one who is elected. That who God elects is God's very self in and as the person of Jesus Christ. God elects Jesus to be for us and for the world. 
And remember, he is the one who is both rejected and elected. Remember what it says in 1 Peter 2.7. The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the rejected and elected one. And he stands in our place. And our position in the family of God comes because God has chosen Christ for us. He is the rejected and elected one for us. And Bart said that this is the foundation of the gospel. That God elected Jesus Christ and in Christ's election, we are elected too. And that's why it's good news for all people. Do you remember the birth narratives when the angels come and they say, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people? Friends, you've heard me say this before. It's not the gospel if it's not good news for all people. And Calvin's doctrine of predestination is not good news for all people. But in Christ, we are chosen. In Christ, we are elected to be part of the family of God. And here's the radical grace of it. And I'll end with this. Even if someone never acknowledges God in their life, or never comes to terms with the indescribable grace and love that God has for God's creation, it does not displace them from the family of God. That's how radical God's grace is. That's how strong God's election of you and me and the election of Jesus Christ stands. So when you look in the mirror and you see your reflection, what you see is a child of God, someone who belongs to the elected family. And when you look at your neighbor, no matter your differences, no matter where you've come from, no matter your biological, genetic line, you're looking at someone who has been chosen by God. And friends, that should make a difference in how we live, shouldn't it? That should make a difference in how we see ourselves and see this world. I believe that if the church is going to have any relevance today, if it's going to make a difference in this world, it needs to claim the election of Jesus Christ and the election of all people in him as part of the family of God. It needs to embrace that truth and speak it and live it for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.